0: The personal is always political, and the political is always personal. You're tuned in to Poppin' Policies with R. Jordan Davis. Welcome to Poppin' Policies Podcast with your host R. Jordan Davis, where we break down politics for your cousins and them. Super excited to have with me on this episode Alexis Cumby, who is the founder of Birmingham's Literary Vibes. She brought the heat. So to listen to our conversation, keep it locked right here. I want to start off the conversation with how did you get into politics? Like, How did you find an interest in this work?
1: Okay, so I get this question all the time, and I wish there was some grand moment where I was like, I want to be in politics, but I think, truth be told, um, it it was just a passion that God put in me. So I started uh, performing poetry sometime around my freshman year of high school, kind of did that throughout high school, and I realized how poetry is so innately political. Um, And the reason I started doing poetry is it was a direct result or protest of the books that were mandated that I had to read in a public school system so I was like all right I don't want to read these books I'm going to create my own stories. so I'm going to start writing and in that I discovered that it's so hard to take my life out of a narrative without including the politics that's attached to it um and so I think politics are I think politics are innately a part of my life as a black woman and because of that the poetry that I wrote was so political
0: yeah, absolutely. And I know you interned for Congresswoman Terry Sewell twice. Um, and I also had the honor of interning for her in 2017. And mm-hmm. she always talks about um her thesis when she was um at Princeton about um black women in politics, our time has come. And I wanted your take on that. Do you believe that, you know, in the era of Kamala Harris um being nominated, you know, as a vice president uh vice presidential candidate, do you believe that black women are finally arriving in politics?
1: You know, I think that black women have always been in politics. Black women have been on the front lines of politics. Um, And we've never really been given the credit for us. And so if your question is, do I think that black women are starting to get more credit? Yes. But black women, we've always been doing the work. Some of our best policies, those are direct results of the work that Black women, Black mothers, Black daughters have been doing long before any of us got here. So um, I'm happy that we're seeing um, people like us reflected in politics, but I want to see more credit. I want to see more money and I want to see more policy.
0: Yeah, absolutely. You said something there that is, I think is just so profound because we always think about the black women who have held office, but we don't think about the Fannie Lou Hamers, the Amelia Boynton Robinsons, you know, who mm-hmm. packed lunches, who were on the front lines of those marches, you know. Um, so that that is a really great point, and I don't believe that we as a nation could have come as far as we have without the policies, without the ideas, without the strength of black women. And um, I know this week um, the decision about Breonna Taylor came out, and you know, as most people, I was just devastated because here we are yet again, um, faced with the fact that a black woman's life um, is not valued in this country. And so I wanna give moment, a moment for you to just kind of um, share your thoughts and opinions about it. And um, what do you hope to see come out of this? I know Daniel Cameron, who is the attorney general, he's gonna be in office until 2024. And so um, just wanna give you a chance to share, you know, some optimism because people are feeling very hopeless in this time. Um, what is some advice that people can do um, politically um, as a result of this moment or to combat um, and confront this moment?
1: Hmm. I think one of the first gut reactions that we're seeing from a lot of codes is that uh, we need to get people to register to vote, and that is so true. Um, but in this moment, what I really want people to reflect on is how are we in our interpersonal relationships, taking care of the Black women in our lives. And um, right now, especially during quarantine and and COVID and pandemics, we're seeing a lot more visible mutual aid. And mutual aid has always been happening in our communities, but it's a lot more apparent because there's a greater need now more than ever. So what I want people to do is, along with voting, I want you to get into your community, figure out what are the issues that are directly impacting Black women, How can you serve with the resources and organizations and positions and power that you already have? And how can you put them in some of those positions of power as well? Um, I know in Birmingham, we have what's called the free store, which is this great resource where people can drop off food to this um, pantry that sits outside of the door. And anyone can walk by, get whatever they need, no question asked. And that small act of I'm going to buy a loaf of bread on my weekly groceries and donate it feeds an entire family. And and sometimes people don't think about that. I think voting, um, especially during an election season like this, that it's so urgent. I think voting sometimes can become a cop-out of ridding yourself of the more personal responsibility that we all have, because we all have something extra that someone needs. So on top of voting, I think we have to really look into ourselves and say, how can we take care of Black women? How can we hold them? And how can we be with them?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And just shifting for a moment to your work, Um, with the organization that you founded, Literary Vibes Birmingham. I know Birmingham is 70% 70 Black, and roughly 28% of the population lives below the poverty line. Um, How have you seen, through your work um, with your organization, um, literacy rates and education being tied to politics um, and political structures here in the city?
1: Okay, so, you know, you have this policy because you understand how difficult politics can be, right? Right. And, and part of one, one of the reasons politics is so hard is because there's all of this language that, you know, a lot of people don't understand. There's yep. this policy and this history. And it's one thing to say, okay, I can read um, a bill that's on the House floor and, and comprehend it. It's another thing if, you know, you can't really even read the names that's on a ballot. Right. And Alabama has—I uh, mean, we're one of the the worst when it comes to education, particularly in our public schools. And we have such bright students yeah. in our public school system. So yeah. it's not the students. What it is is the infrastructure um, that 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 really fails our students and doesn't equip them with the language to understand politics. And not just politics. I, literacy is is it underpins so much of what we do. Like if you can't read you can't understand your prescription you have yeah. you don't have a greater fluency in health literacy and and that ties into why alabama healthcare is so bad and so um when you equip someone with the opportunity to understand language it really does expand their quality of life in ways that i can't even explain whether it's being able to write their own narratives and tell their own stories advocate for their own policies or just being able to read a prescription every day
0: yeah, yeah. And I also love the element to your organization where you go out and enhance the power of storytelling, especially, you know, in the Black community where, you know, our culture is oral narrations, you know, oral storytelling, um, and you're keeping that alive. How have you seen throughout, you know, your your tours around Alabama and the Southeast, how have you seen that kind of permeate that art of storytelling um, and, and oral storytelling? particularly, how have you seen that permeate itself so, um, now in this modern age, this modern movement um, of Black Lives Matter.
1: Hmm. I always think back about the, the very first showcase that we had for Literary Vibes where um, as organizers, we really didn't know what we were doing because we didn't know what Literary Vibes was gonna look like. We just know that we wanted to have a poetry showcase to feature some of the best youth artists in Alabama and, and we wanted people to be there. Um, and, and just being able to see those young students back then, I was a, a senior of high school about to go into my freshman year of college. And so, and pretty much all of us were. And so just being able to see them tell their stories in front of Alabama politicians, grandmothers, business owners, just everyone was in the room. Um, and everyone took something away from that. And, and what was so special about that showcase, in my opinion, was uh, yes, the showcase was special, but it was the fact that so many people hung out after the showcase to foster that community dialogue to say, hey, you had this poem about um, what it means to be fat shame. Can we talk about that? Because I've never heard that before. And so when we talk about the power of storytelling, what it really does is connect, I like to say, a potpourri of narratives together and foster that community dialogue where real action happens.
0: Yeah, Uh, that's amazing. I love that, I love that. Because a lot of times, especially in this day and age, um, everyone can be so divisive and we don't take the time to listen to one another. And so the, the way in which you have created a platform to where you're equipping people usually will would go unheard with the ability to speak you know in front of these these people who would not get the chance to hear them unless it weren't you know for your organization um and so i just think that that is so profound because a lot of the times um there is a disconnect from politicians in their constituency and it's because they don't people don't feel empowered to um, go up or not even go up, but call or email their politicians about things that they that they care for. And so I love how you intertwine that advocacy piece into that as well. Um, you talk about um, incorporating like business. Um, I know you majored in like business administration um, and pol- uh, political science, and you kind of looked at it through the lens of public policy. How do you see like Um, Black people advocating for their themselves in the business world in the corporate world. I know Wells Fargo um, CEO just came out uh, with a statement that was very uh, racist on face Um, so how how in the business world do you see us advocating for um, Ourselves and the policies that are placed in the corporate setting Hmm. That's
1: a great question. Um, well, I, I feel like one way that uh, Black business owners can really help the community is to to be in the community. Um, historically, Black communities have been disenfranchised. Um, right now, like uh, we have gentrification that's happening. And so just your presence of being in a business means so much, even if you're the very last grocery store. Um, and I think we can all reflect back on our communities and and think of that that family that stays on the end of the block that's been there since the since its inception since its genesis and how just their presence makes the community safer warmer and more welcoming to black bodies and, yeah. and I, I think black businesses that that cater to the idea that they believe that all black lives matter um really emphasize that the most and so um my advice to black business owners is just to um make sure that your your policies and, and your business ethics cater the black community
0: Mm. yeah that's good because um, especially in a system that did not intend for the longevity of black people the success Mm. of black people it's very hard to um go against the grain if you will um the status quo of what business is like um and so in this age while i'm talking about status quo um there's a lot of Talk about reimagination of different institutions. Do you think that it will take us to create new institutions or we have to kind of restructure the institutions that are already there? And I know it's taxing and daunting to create new institutions because that takes a whole lot of organization and strategy. But in your opinion, um, what does that look like for you? What does reimagination look like for you um, in terms of these structures that are in place?
1: Hmm. And I think it depends on the institutions that we're talking about, but I mean for so long we have been trying to reform institutions and break through the door and get a seat at the table, um, but but as long as there is a table, someone is excluded from it because tables are innately limited, and so because of that, I, I do believe that we need new institutions, um, and sometimes we feel pressure to think, okay, well, you know we have to reimagine this work but the truth is uh, when we go back to the black women who have already studied and researched this work they already have frameworks that exist for a lot of the institutions that are actively harming us in society and so um, I, I think we need to listen to uh, our ancestors and our freedom fighters that have already done this work and and see how we can um, kind of tweak it to modern day and make it more um, and, and make it more accommodating to the, the new identities that we have today, the new freedoms, um, and the new needs and demands that we have. But as far as the infrastructure of how do we create new institutions when it seems like everything's tangled up and established and, and traditional? And the truth is, um, you know, America's not that old, yeah. not compared to a lot of the countries that already exist. And so we convince ourselves that, you know, this is something that's always existed since the dawn of time. And that's not true. America is a very young country and we've seen other countries reform and kind of tear down their systems and rebuild. But in in America, you know, we're so stuck on tradition that sometimes we forget that that's a possibility.
0: Right. Yeah, absolutely. And when you were talking, you know, just about the framework that Black women have um, already set in place, I couldn't help but think about you know self care because this work is mm-hmm. very taxing, and you know Audre Lorde said caring for myself is not self indulgence; it is self preservation, and that yeah. is an act of political warfare. So how do you incorporate self care in this work?
1: Mm. So I, I think about this time that I had the opportunity to hear Patrice cooler, the, the founder of Black Lives Matter speak, and she said something that I always carry with me now, where she says that self-care is actually community care, because I cannot give you um, the best parts of me if I do not preserve the best parts of me. Mm. Um, and so because of that, I, I think that for me, self-care looks like a wine night with my with my friends, and it looks like uh, binge watching girlfriends it looks like journaling yeah. it looks like um, praying and, and it looks like you know writing some poetry and, and watering my plants and just um, just being in the presence of those that I love um, and so I really encourage people because sometimes especially as as young black people who feel like we have to have it all together and figure it all out and mm-hmm. solve the world's problems we have this pressure to feel as if um, any moment that we're sitting still is a moment that we're wasting. Um, and, you know, I, I'm a real uh, uh, Christian, b- biblical person, and so I really have had to do internal work of God of just saying, hey, you have to sit still so I can talk with you and connect with you and sort of recalibrate your efforts, um, and I, I really encourage anyone, whether uh, whatever religion they follow or Whatever they believe in, that the idea that we all have to sit still sometimes, because if we keep going, if we if we just go eighty miles per hour, we're always gonna miss something in the peripheral.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Get you a Sabbath. I had to realize that too. <laughs> <laughs> like you need a rest day because you cannot run off fumes. You'll be no good. Trust me, there. No good. <laughs> so I definitely echo that. I definitely echo that. Um there was one other thing that I wanted to talk to you about, um, and it was um about voting rights. I know everyone is talking about um voter fraud, there's a lot of speculation about what this election is gonna look like, a lot of worries as well. Um, what is your your case to those who may feel that voting in this election um is not worth it? And it, it
1: I see that. And I'm like, it's not worth it to who? Because it's worth it to me. Um, And so many of my identities are under attack um, by this current administration and the possibilities of uh, extending their time in the White House. And so um, I don't think that anyone in in this pandemic can really look at their life and say, this is the greatest year ever and it's been going great. Um, And so when people are just saying that they're okay with the times of what it is or they're sort of conflicted between Um, the two candidates and no one represents their beliefs. Um, Well, then my question is, what are you doing in your community to make sure that the beliefs that you believe in are at the forefront of policy? And so sometimes people jump so, so um, they jump so far to the presidential election. And then sometimes we skip our town halls in our communities.
0: Yeah.
1: Or we we skip our neighborhood meetings. And so um, my advice to them is just, you know, like I'm a strong believer in that you should vote in every election. Um, because even if there's something or someone that you don't agree with, there's always someone that you agree with a little bit more. And then once you put them in office, you apply the pressure, you show up, you call them, you email them, you do whatever you have to do. Then on top of that, um, uh, more on a local scale, we have more access to our politicians. You know, Most of us are never going to just run into Trump on the street, but we are going to run into our mayors. We are going to run into our city councils, um, our attorney generals. And those are the people that we need to be connecting with to say, hey, like, why why is my school being defunded
0: yeah absolutely i know stacy abrams talks about voting as a process like we can't we can't think of this process as being a a, something that will be solved when you do it once it it takes something it takes a act that will be done over and over again and so i definitely agree that voting in every election um we really get to see more of an outcome that we wish because we're connected to the people that are on the ballot, especially for local elections. Um, we're conne- we're more connected to the people on the ballot and we can uh, hold them accountable as a result. So I definitely agree with that. And I just wanna encourage everyone um, to fill out their senses. I know everyone to be sure that they're on top of that, but also making sure that um, people are engaged and aware um, and informed, and that goes back to your literacy piece, right, informed about who is on the ballot, um, because it's not just president, uh, the presidential rights that's on the ballot. You know, in Alabama, we have senators. Um, some cities have mayors um, and, and other elected officials, and so I want us to do our due diligence um, when it comes to the election in November. Uh,
1: yeah, so and, and sometimes people get discouraged because they think that voting is so just complicit in the system. Um, and I think that it's easy to adopt that idea if we only see the the quote unquote revolution as this uh, linear route. But I mean, the truth is there's so many ways that we can, as you described earlier, um, create new institutions of honesty and truth and dignity. And the ways that we do that are multi-pronged. So it's voting and it's protesting and it's showing up in town halls and it's mutual aid and it's self care and community care. All of those equally contribute to our Um, capacity to envision a new future and implement
0: the future that we want to see. Let us know um, your socials and where people can find you and follow you and the good work that you're doing.
1: Great yeah and you all can at me on uh, Facebook and Twitter and Instagram at Alexis and then my name I'm gonna spell it out for you y'all because it's a little bit long but it's A-L-E-X three U's and, and four S's and so follow that and you can also follow my organization page, Literary Vibes. It's
0: going to be Literary Vibes, Be Ham. Shout out to Alexis for swinging through popping Policies. Thank you for giving up your time, your wisdom, and your energy, not only for the listeners, but for me. You are an inspiration and a prime example of the greatness that Birmingham produces. If you enjoyed this episode, please follow the podcast on Instagram at Poppin' Policies Podcast. You can also follow me on Instagram and Twitter at IMR Jordan for more updates on podcast episodes. So, without any delay, you already know how we ended here. Learn to do right, seek justice, defend the oppressed. See you next time on Poppin' Policies with R. Jordan Davis.